I got a few yeses up here. Do you get lied to on a regular basis or sense that you do? I'm sure we do. Does it happen a couple times a week at work with your friends, home? I'm sure many yes to all the above. Or maybe you're on the other end of the stick and you're doing some of the lying. I think we could probably say yes to that. Maybe you even often tell a lie here and there, maybe to get out of something or maybe to bypass hurting somebody's feelings. Maybe that happens, I don't know. Or possibly maybe you misspeak as some politicians like to say in order to shade the whole truth. Uh, That's very common. Well, in a newsletter called Soul Cafe, Leonard Sweet lists his top 10 liar's lies, the things you and I hear all the time, the things that we say, but things we know, honestly, they're just not true. So here's the uh, top things people say out of habit. Um, And this is an article called Soul Cafe, top 10. Number 10 is, we'll only stay for five minutes. (laughs) I know that's not true. I hear this every once in a while at a session meeting. Number nine, this will be a short meeting. Uh, if you're a Seinfeld uh, you know, you know, person who watches that show, this is a good one. Number eight, it's not you, it's me. Number seven, hopefully you actually have gotten this check, but number seven is the check is in the mail. Number six, I like this one, it's, it's uh, relevant for us. I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Another relationship one, number five, this hurts me more than it hurts you. Number four, your money will be fully refunded. I've heard that from Best Buy. Number three, we service what we sell. Number two, I think you've all heard this, maybe even this past weekend, your table will be ready in just a moment. And the top 10 liars lies that we say, that other people say to us, that we just honestly know is not true. It says, number one, I'll start dieting tomorrow. All right. Now, you know, some of these are pretty, some of these are pretty funny. You know, be, why are they funny? Because they're true. We say them, other people say them to us. But let's be honest. These are the kind of habitual lies that people say to us and that we say to others often. We don't believe them. We know they're not true, but yet sometimes we say them anyway. And they may not be incredibly hurtful to us or to others, But what we're doing when we get in the habit of telling these little white lies is we're sacrificing our integrity as Christians. When we, out of habit, tell these little lies from time to time, we are creating worn paths, worn channels for which we will travel down in times of need and desperation, very much like what we're gonna see Abraham do in our passage this morning. It's not a path towards godliness, honesty, transparency, and holiness that we're traveling towards but it's a path towards sin and self-preservation in many ways, many forms. And as we're gonna see here in Genesis 20, like we did before in Genesis 12, Abraham is gonna once again travel down his well-worn path of habitual sin. We're gonna see that. He's gonna tell some more half-truths and he's gonna get into some trouble. But despite Abraham's faithlessness, it is not trusting God to protect him on his journeys. We're gonna witness God's his grace and his mercy over him anyway, for we serve a good God who is gracious to us in amidst our sin. For the God whom Abraham serves is the same God whom we serve and he keeps his promise to us and he watches over us. 
And he uses all, ex all experiences, all circumstances, whether good or bad for our growth and his ultimate glory. But before we jump into our text, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you that we can come to you this morning, Father, and worship you. Um, Father, we want to learn from you. And Father, we want to hear from you. Open our ears, open our hearts, open our minds, Father, um, to hear from your word. It is good, it is true. We need to hear from it, we need to learn from it and apply it, Father, and love it. It is our only hope, Father, and we thank you that you give us this freely. So Father, we come before you asking for your help and for your grace and for your love. And we ask all these things in your name, amen. All right, if you guys have your bulletin insert, go ahead and pull that out. And if you have your Bibles with you, we're gonna be looking at Genesis 20 verses one through 18. It's also, the text is also in your bulletin if you wanna look at that. Now we're gonna break the text up into two chunks. We're gonna look at verses one through eight and then nine through 18. But if you have that, go ahead and read with me Genesis 20 verses one through eight first. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of Negev and he lived between Kadesh and Shur and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, behold, you are a dead man because of the woman you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother in the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife for he is a prophet so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. As we take a closer look at these eight verses, there's two things that I wanna draw particularly attention to. And they're also in your bulletin. It's gonna be faithlessness and grace. Faithlessness and grace. It's Abraham's faithlessness and God's grace that we're gonna see. Let's look at verses one and two. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of Negev, and he lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of his wife, Sarah, she is my sister. And Abimelech king of Gerar sent and took her. Now what's important is we've, we've taken two weeks away from Abraham. We've been kind of looking at Lot a little bit, but now we're jumping back into the story and narrative of Abraham where we left off in Genesis 18. The from there in verse one is referring to the land of Mamre. And that's where we last saw Abraham. And it is from Mamre that Abraham traveled south, settling between Kadesh and Shur. And once he settled there, we're not given the time frame of how long, he traveled back up northwest to Gerar. So he traveled south and he travels back up northwest. Right. The one thing though I wanna highlight about Abraham's journey, and that's very specific to Abraham, is that he was a sojourner and an alien in a foreign land. You would ask, yes, but why is that important? What's relevant about that? Well, he lacked certain rights, protections, and privileges 
that settled citizens actually had in that day and age. He lacked those as a traveler, as a foreigner. And that fact alone is gonna help us better understand why Abraham does what in fact he does in verse two. So verse two tells us that Abraham upon intern Gerar tells the people that his female travel companion is his sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, takes notice of Sarah, who is in fact Abraham's sister. And he has her basically added to his harem of wives. All right. Doesn't that sound familiar? Did we not see this already? Dave preached on it not too, not too long ago in Genesis 12, where we saw Pharaoh take Sarah. And you might be asking, you know, why would he do that? Well, Dave had some pretty good answers. We're going to take a look at that in just, um, just a little bit. But what I want you to see is that there's connection that Abraham is again committing a continual sin of offering his wife up when questioned about who is this? Who is this woman? So we saw that in Genesis 12. We're seeing again here in 20. And it's becoming quite obvious at this point in our text that we're seeing a recurring sin, recurring theme in the life of Abraham. And that's what the Puritans call a besetting sin. But it isn't interesting though, though, I want to note this in the scripture, just looking at the Bible, just from a general standpoint, that the Bible provides us with a very real picture of Abraham. We don't just get all the awesome things Abraham does on all showing his mighty faith, his power, but we see him in his weakness and his frailty. We see him in his sin. Your Bibles, our scriptures provide a very real picture of a man who's in need of grace, very much like you and I this morning. We have a good God who's real, who's practical, and who's gracious. I know we're in a Presbyterian church, but man, you could say amen to that. That is good news. And if you're paying really close to Dave's sermon and also to verse two, you might be asking, you know, this king, he probably has a pretty large hair and probably has lots of young wives. Why would, in fact, he take Sarah? Wasn't she 65 uh, in the count of the Genesis 12? You would be correct. And here in our in our passage, she in fact actually is 90 years old when King Gerar takes notice of her. It's interesting. I know. Mm-hmm. You know? And, you know, I, to your dismay, I'm sorry, the text doesn't give us exactly the reason why he took notice of her. But commentators speculate, you know, it's possible that Abraham, being a wealthy man, being a man who has many servants, much wealth, could maybe want to strike a treaty with Abraham, possibly. Or it's possible that Sarah had fair skin. Maybe she was younger looking than her age. People did live longer in that time. So maybe he took notice of her and she was a very beautiful woman, even at the you know, young age of 90, absolutely. So we don't know, the, the text doesn't tell us, but those are possibilities of why you know, he might have taken her. So we don't really know. But what we do know is what scripture says that Abraham once again acted not out of faith, but out of self-preservation, basically offering his wife up to the king so that he wouldn't be killed. And I'm sure he did it reluctantly, but nonetheless, he still did it. It was still a sin. And we're gonna see later, Abraham's gonna try to rationalize this sin. It's a futile effort, but he's gonna try. And in verses three through seven, as Sarah is in the custody of Abimelech, we're given a glimpse into God's conversation with Abimelech, which happened to occur in a dream, which happens often in the Old Testament. Verse three tells us that God makes his powerful presence known in the dream because he says this, behold, 
You, Abimelech, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now, Abimelech didn't know that she was, you know, a married woman because he says in verse five, in the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. You know, and he's right to an extent because if you call, what did Abraham say? He said, this is my sister. And what did Sarah say? She said, he is my brother. So he's right to an extent because both of these people, they deceived Abimelech and they only told him half the truth. Very much like what you and I do when we're in sticky situations and maybe sometimes when our sins are exposed. So what we're seeing is Abimelech is appealing to God of his innocence. He even goes as far to say that he has not even touched her yet. And in God's response, he says, yes, I know that you have done this in integrity of your heart because it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Notice who the offense is against in this case. The offense is against God, not just Sarah and not just Abraham. That's important for us to keep when we think about our sins. We are offending first and foremost, a holy and righteous God when you and I commit sins. Yes, we are offending others and hurting ourselves, but we are also offending a holy and a good and righteous God. So in God's response to Abimelech, he says, now return the man's wife for he is a prophet so that he will pray for you and you shall surely live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. God is making it crystal clear here that he is deadly serious about this sin. He's making He's not making light of this at all because I want you to see what's at stake here. What's at stake is God's promise for God's people, which was to come through the line of lineage of Abraham. But even as God is threatened by Abraham's besetting sin, his habitual sin, and Abimelech's unconscious sin against God, God still shows his grace and his mercy to them in a mighty way. For God provides Abimelech and Abraham a way out. He provides for them a mediator in the situation. Because I want you to notice this. God calls Abraham a prophet, a Navi, for the very first time in scripture. And he's not called a prophet in the sense that he's gonna foretell the future in this case, but he's called a prophet in the sense that he's gonna be providing intercessory prayer like we have already seen him do, like he did for the king of Sodom. And as a result, Abimelech is going to live because God is gonna listen, he's gonna be gracious, he's gonna hear Abraham's prayer even amidst his sin. Get all what's implied in these verses that we've just looked at. Abraham continues in his habitual lying, yet God magnifies him and unshamingly calls him a prophet. He still loves him, he still owns him and lifts him up. You and I continue in our known secrets in this life, secret sins, habitual sins, Yet we are still called children of God, heirs to the throne of the almighty King. And God still uses us, even in your sin and in my sin, to bring about his greater glory. That is a good God. Notice also that God still listens to Abraham's prayers for he calls him a prophet and he advises him to intercede for Abimelech. You know, God still hears your prayers. He still hears my prayers and he delights in answering them in accordance to his will. Even though you and I try to hide our sins all the time, day in, day out, he protects and serves Sarah, even though she helped Abraham lie and participated in this heinous sin. God still protects Sarah and preserves her, even though 
she aided in this heinous thing. That same God of the Lord, the same God that you and I serve, the Lord of the universe, he still watches over us, still protects us, and he still loves us, even though you and I sin against him on a daily basis in known sins and deliberate sins and in things that we don't know, things that are unconscious that we do. And lastly, Abimelech, a pagan king who almost desecrates a prophet's wife, bad move, man, almost forfeits the promise of the holy seed, yet God in his grace provides a way out for him. You and I intentionally break God's laws all the time. You know it, I know it. We were laughing at those things in the beginning. It's probably because a lot of us do those things. But God still sent his only son to provide love, grace, mercy for you and I. And he still protects us and he preserves us and sifts those events in our lives to the things that we need and the things that will be good for us and things that will bring him ultimate glory. You know, it's already been clear, already clear in this text that we've seen God is incredibly gracious to sinners like you and I, even though when we struggle in habitual sin like Abraham, still good to us. But if you're not convinced, I got good news for you. We've got some more verses to take a look at to convince you of that, of God's goodness and his grace. The second portion that we're gonna read now is we're gonna look at verses nine through 18. And if you're following along in your bulletins, this section is titled, Rationalizing Sin and Grace. Let's take a read, verse nine. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? How have I sinned against you that you have brought on me in my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? And Abraham said, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place. They will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she indeed is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God, God calls me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness she must do to me at every place of which we come. Save me. He is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep, oxen, male servants, female servants, gave them to Abraham, returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver and a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, God healed Abimelech, and he also healed his wife, female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Now let's break this down to a few bite-sized chunks so we can actually see what's going on here. Here in these two verses, we see Abimelech beginning his conversation with Abraham. All right. So, and right out of the gate, as Abimelech is asking a very long, you know, basically string of legitimate questions to Abraham. He, what he's doing is exposing, exposing Abraham's sin because Abraham is trying to conceal the whole truth by rationalizing his sin. Abimelech, he, he says these three questions. He says, what have you done to us? How have I, Abimelech, sinned against you, Abraham, that you have brought this on me, a great sin? What did you see in my kingdom that you would do this thing to us? What God is doing here is he's using Abimelech as an instrument to expose Abraham's sin so that he can no longer hide behind his explanation and excuses. 
Now, I know this does not only happen in scripture, but I'm sure it happens in many of your lives as well, just like it happens in my life. And so I would ask of you, is there a person in your life that has been used as an instrument of God to reveal and expose some of your sins? Maybe it's a family member, husband, wife, maybe it's your children, maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's your boss, friends at school. And you know, if, honestly, if we're honest with ourselves, it's probably, Lord, you use probably multiple of those different people in our lives to expose our sins, you know? And, you know, for me personally, from time to time, um, my beautiful fiance is rightly used by God to show me just how selfish I truly am. Um, Give you a nice example of this. One time she gently reminded me that out of the last five movies we had seen, um, I had picked the last four. (laughs) Now, my rationalization to her was that, you know, honey, these are all great movies. Come on. (laughs) This is, I'm picking good stuff here. But you know, just even that little example, just something minor like that exposed my sin. And it's like, man, Jeff, you really are selfish. And even in little ways like that, and I'm sure many of you can relate to that. Uh, you know, many times when our sins are revealed and they are exposed, it's painful. And when we experience pain, what do we do? We react. We try to rationalize those things. Um, and many of us do that oftentimes. And you know what? This is exactly what Abraham does right here in our text. Let me, let me read to you Abraham in a manly, strong, faith in God, confident answer as he responds to these string of legitimate questions from Abimelech. He says this, I did it because I thought, there's no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. But besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And hmm, she became my wife. And when God though, when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, sweetie, this is the kindness she must do to me at every place. Save me, he's my brother. Just, just, simple, just something simple as that. What great faith Abraham is showing us here in the text. What manly man of faith, I know, right? But did you also notice what Abraham said about this kindness? that is supposed to be done, that Abraham, that she's supposed to perform. Every place that we go, you're to perform this kindness. Every place that we go. And we have seen this now twice in scripture that Abraham has asked her twice to do this. So we're seeing this recurring sin, this habitual sin of offering her up so that he would get off, so that his life could be spared possibly. Although taking Abraham's side for just a moment, what he may be saying may be very well true, maybe actually legitimate. Maybe that the people who are in Gerar, maybe they were immoral, maybe they were godless, and maybe there was a real threat to his life. I agree with your sentiments, and I know what you're thinking. That still doesn't give him the right to abandon his faith and not trust in a holy and a good God who, who had protected him and provided for him all the way up until this point, and who gave him promises and even revealed himself in mighty ways. He didn't get off the hook, I agree. But you know what? It's also not right for you and I to try to justify our sins, our habitual lying, our secret sins, whatever they may be. When we're faced with exposure, when we're faced with difficult trials, um, no matter how big or small they are, it's, it's not right for us to do that. 
And it's not right for us to try to rationalize those sins in response. Let me tell you, it is futile to try to rationalize those sins, just as it was for Abraham here. You know, if God knows your deepest, he knows your darkest sins. He knows the motivations for those sins. He knows your deliberate sins. He knows your unconscious sins. He knows you better than you know yourself, better than your wife, your husband, your kids. He knows you well. And to be honest, you know, he will expose them in time. He will, because he's a good God and he loves his people. And he wants to root out the sin in their lives. This episode in the life of Abraham, it bears witness to that. It really does. I think also what's insightful about this is it's very telling of human nature of what's going on here. That Abraham is starting to shift the blame for something that's legitimate, maybe being that people who really want to kill him, shifting the blame to God. Look at what he says. He says, when God calls me to wander from my father's house, who's the subject of that sentence? God is. God is the cause of Abraham's security problems because he called him to be a sojourner in alien foreign lands. God is the cause. He's the problem. The blame is shifting from something humanly understandable, which you and I would know to be maybe be lawless people, people who didn't worship God, people who didn't, you know, maybe love their brothers and sisters the way they should. Now he's shifting it to God. But I would ask you, how often do you do that in your life? I know I do that in my life quite often. And if you're honest, you know that you probably do that too. Shifting the blame to God because you're unhappy, maybe with your relationship with your children, maybe you're unhappy with your relationship with your spouse, shift the blame to God because of that. Maybe you blame God for discontentment with your work. You're not happy. Or maybe you're not getting a raise that you think you deserve. Or maybe you blame God because you haven't received fill in the blank. What we're seeing is Abraham's rationalization for this sin is unfortunately, it is very common, very common human behavior, but it's not right. And you know what? We need to take steps forwards really to break out of this cycle of continuing in our telling half-truths, the habitual sins of being wickedly selfish, telling little white lies in little ways and compensating also in our lives ways for the lack of fulfillment in our jobs, our marriages, our friendships, and just in life in general. Because oftentimes, I don't think we, all, we, we very much believe that God is our ultimate healer, he's, that, he's our ultimate fulfiller, and that he's our ultimate truth. But you know what he is? He is the ultimate healer, he's the ultimate fulfiller, and he is the ultimate truth and standard by which we live in this life. And it's only in him that you will find satisfaction in anything in your life. It's only in Christ that you find satisfaction, wholeness, and completion. But we're gonna come back to look at maybe some ways to actually we can start to deal with this, to begin to break out of the cycle. We're gonna come back to that in just a little bit. But let's continue looking on. Let's look at Abraham's, um, in response to Abraham's words, let's see what happens in this text. Verse 14, Abimelech took sheep and oxen, male servants, female servants. He gave them to Abraham, returned Sarah, his wife. And Abimelech said, behold, my land is before you to where, dwell, excuse me, where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and he healed his wife, his female slaves, so that they bore children. 
For the Lord God had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Now Abimelech didn't knowingly take Abraham's wife, but technically he did take another man's wife. And that wife happened to be a wife of a prophet. Very bad move on top of taking a man's wife. And the king wanting to be healed and wanting to be pardoned of this charge. He pays restitution to Abraham and Sarah, honestly, probably in hopes of trying to appease this God who came to him in this dream. Probably wasn't out of faith. And he gives him an unspecified amount of cattle and slaves, as well as he gives him the full rights, gives him the ability to have the full rights of a citizen to dwell and live in his land, right? We talked about that Abraham was a sojourner without those rights. And as an act to show Sarah's innocence to all her people, Abimelech gives her a large sum of silver equivalent to the price paid for a bride in that day and age. And according to, according to Near Eastern literature, roughly 25 pounds of silver were probably given. That's a lot of silver. That is the amount of silver that's more than a common worker could expect to make in a lifetime. It's given a lot. And then as instructed, Abraham prayed to God and God showing his goodness and his grace to Abraham. He listens to Abraham's prayer. He heals Abimelech. He heals Abimelech's wife and all his female slaves so that they could bear children again. Now we're not told exactly what ailment that they suffered from, but obviously it had to do something with the reproductive system. We don't know exactly what, but obviously that's what God closed up or cost within all of them. And as we read all of these verses, have you drawn any connections from what we've talked, what, what we heard a while ago in Genesis 12 with um, the interaction between Pharaoh and Abraham to now, with Genesis 20 between Abimelech and Abraham? Because what we're doing is we're seeing a recurring theme, a recurring sin take place in the life of Abraham, and we are also not just seeing the sin, but we're being reminded God is 100% sovereign in this story and in the life of Abraham. And you know what? He is 100% sovereign in your life too. Absolutely. You know, look at verse six, because this is something that explicitly says this, that God is 100% sovereign, not only in the outcome, but in the small details. Look at verse six. God says to him, like, it was I who kept you from sinning against me. I, God, did not let you, Abimelech, touch her. I did not let you touch her. Think about this for a moment. If God can prevent the action of this king from touching Sarah, was the king's choice really free? And if God can do this for the king, restraining him from touching her, can he and does he also do it for others and does he do, does he do it for us? I believe he can, and I believe he does. God's sovereignty isn't solely limited to biblical patriarchs like Abraham, for God is also sovereign of your life and of my life too. You know, he may allow habitual sins to continue in our lives for reasons beyond our comprehension, but he still loves us, he still showers his grace and mercy on us, and he still uses us to further his kingdom and to bring him goodness and glory, and for us, joy and being used by God. But you know what? He also hates sin. He really does. He does not enjoy it. And we also have a responsibility of working towards helping to kill those sins by God's power 
and by the means he provides us. Philippians 2, 12 through 13, Paul says this, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now that you have obtained this salvation, believing in Jesus Christ, go forward, humble yourselves, follow God's will and work towards godliness in your life. Let me tell you, friends, Godliness is difficult and it is painful and it is a painful process, absolutely. And you know as well as I do, especially when it includes exposing and dealing with habitual sins or secret sins in our lives. But you know what? God is sovereign and he wants to help you. He wants to help me work through those sins in our lives, just like he did with Abraham. Sometimes it means exposing them when we don't expose them ourselves. For God provides the means by which you and I may begin to wrestle and defeat the sins in our lives. But you know, we gotta trust God and utilize the means of grace from which he provides us to wrestle with those things. I'd like to stand up here and tell you, hey, there's five great things you can do to get rid of whatever in your life. But you know what? There's no magic formula, but there are a few helpful means which God provides for us to wrestle with some of these things and towards killing some of the sins in our lives. I'm just gonna list off four for you. Start on your knees in prayer. Thank the Lord for his goodness and his grace to you. Recognize and admit that he is able, he is powerful, and he's willing to help you struggle and work through those sins in your life. Ask him for continual strength. Support you as you move forward with facing sin. Facing sin is a hard and difficult thing and you need his strength with you every step of the way. Two, expose your sin. Don't let, ha- don't, you know, let God have to do that for you. It's usually more painful. Two, expose your sin. Repent before God. Reveal your heart to him. Talk with the pastor. Talk with the counselor. Talk with the trusted friend about your struggle. And trust that God's going to be gracious to you as you struggle through and being transparent with other people with your sins. He's gonna be with you every step of the way. He knows what you're going through. He wants to help you. But let me tell you, talk with others, expose the sin. Don't let him do it for you. You know what? We all need help bringing light into the dark places in our hearts. We absolutely do. One way you can do that, it's been mentioned before. If you wanna talk to our in-house staff counselor, John Lauber, he's a great guy. I personally worked with him. and I know many of you others have too. And he's a great guy. Talk with John Lauber. Dave or I or the elders can get you in contact with him if you're interested. Number three, this is a tough one, especially sometimes for men, but also sometimes for women too. Listen, be open and, and listen to the wise counsel of God's people and God's word. Listen to the counsel of God's people and God's word in your life. Listen for God's subtle prompts in your life to make certain changes, whether big or small, whether they're in your belief system or whether it's the way how you act. And believe that God will use his people. He will use his word in your life to root out those sins and to help you deal with them and struggle with them as he provides this means of counsel for you. But you know what? You gotta be open to that. You gotta be open to that in your life Um, and pray and ask that you would be open continually. And fourth, believe and trust God. Believe and trust God that he knows exactly what is going on amidst your difficulty and your struggle of dealing with the sins that you're wrestling with, habitual, secret, whatever they may be. 
know that he knows what's going on, that he's ultimately in control as we've seen in this passage. Not only the outcome of things in our lives, but also in the small details of it. He knows how hard things get. You know what? Christ has your back. That's why he went to the cross. And he wants, he wants to take care of you. He wants to help you every step of the way. And you know what? You're gonna get stuck along the way. It's gonna be difficult, especially if you really start trying to deal with those sins. It's, it's gonna be that way. But you know what? Christ is there with you and he's sovereign over all things. And that's good news for us. We have somebody who looks out for us, wants to take care of us. For even though Abraham continued in his sin, God was still faithful to his covenant and to his promises, which he made to Abraham. God preserved the covenant line, which was to come through Abraham by restraining from him touching her. It's awesome. Galatians 3.16 says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. Paul's explaining that Jesus Christ is the offspring of Abraham that was promised. And when God restrained Abimelech from sexually approaching Sarah, he was preserving the ultimate answer to sin, which is Jesus Christ. Can't make this any more clear and explicit that Christ is the answer to sin, both now, temporarily, and eternally, forevermore. And on the cross, he destroyed the penalty of those sins through his death and in his resurrection, we have become recipients of a new life, freed from the bondage of sin and free from having to sin just to try to fill those voids in our life. We have been freed from those things. But even though we have been freed from our eternal consequences of sin, there are still sins in our lives that still ravage our bodies, our relationships, our minds. You know what? Christ is the answer for those two. For the spirit of God is with us and he's able to help us move towards godliness. And when Christ returns, you know, all besetting sins, all habitual sins, all your secret sins, they're gonna be gone. But you know what? They're still here today with us. But you know what? We do have hope that one day they will truly be gone. We won't have to wrestle with them. There will be no struggle. Things that are broken will be restored. But until that day, you and I, we must remain vigilant and fighting against those sins which plague our lives, plague our relationships, our families. And we must be continually willing to humble ourselves and accept God's grace that he gives to us. For he is patient, he is kind, he's merciful, and he is very, very loving to us. And that's why he provided the ultimate answer in Jesus Christ. He provided his only son to pay for your sins, pay for my sins. That is the grace that you and I have today, wrestling with our sin. That is the grace that Abraham had, wrestling with his sin. That is what he looked toward to, and that's what he hoped for. He, being Jesus Christ himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And by his wounds, you have been healed. That we might die to sin, live to righteousness. And by his wounds, you have been healed. Friends, do you believe that? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, it's difficult um, wrestling with sin, um, especially habitual sins that plague our lives and come up from time to time. And it's difficult when our sins are exposed, Father, but there's grace and mercy for your people. Father, for you love us. You're willing to help us, Father, and you provide means for us. You provide your people. You provide your word, Father. You provide the ability for us to pray, Father, to trust and to love you, to enter into that relationship, Father, to free us from these sins 
from the struggle of them, not just now, but Father, for forevermore, for eternally, that they would be gone and run from our lives. Thank you, Father, for providing your son, for Christ is the true answer to all sin. Now and always, Father, we thank you for that. And we ask all these things in your name as we worship you continually this morning. Amen.